HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. As summer break lures school to a halt, many students and families will stumble with the stability and consistency of food. Pre-pandemic schools fed over 30 million students, enrolled in free or reduced price breakfasts and lunches. It is a critically important program that struggled to meet families' changing needs when classes went remote during COVID. There was a 36% spike in food insecurity during the pandemic, as well as increases in rates of childhood obesity. In New York, 1.5 million residents are struggling to feed themselves and their families right now. One out of four children is experiencing food insecurity. Nevertheless, there are programs out there that provide support for families during the out-of-school season. The Department of Education will continue to offer free breakfast and lunch. Historically, the program's reach has paled in comparison to that of school meals during the academic year. In the past, some have criticized the age restrictions if a parent or grandparent brings a student to lunch but can't eat themselves, it can be an uncomfortable and even shameful experience. Nonprofits like Hunger Solutions NYC partner with the schools and communities to try to fill in the gaps but don't solve the problems either. Many are lobbying the city to increase the budget for these programs. Last summer marked a victory when the daily meal count for the city's summer meals was increased and people of all ages were welcome to eat. A break from school doesn't make the season a breeze for many, and it definitely shouldn't determine the fate of people's meals. Everyone deserves to eat. Food policy affects everyone, from children and families to street vendors and farmers. Right now, HRN's home city and state of New York are in the midst of several food policy changes. We are inching closer to the end of the pandemic, The state's been under new leadership since August, and the city is adjusting to a relatively new mayoral administration. 
Mayor Eric Adams has primarily focused on crime, COVID, and the economy, but food policy has been a central piece of his agenda as well. It was even part of his first couple executive orders, which required city agencies to serve healthy foods and put forth that city promotions and advertisements featuring food must exemplify healthy foods. Adams also launched a Vegan Fridays program in public schools, which was greeted with mixed reviews. Some people praised the mayor, while others said it was unappetizing, posting pictures on Twitter as proof. But no matter how you vote or where you live and eat, join us for a tour of New York to see how legislation impacts what we consume, from the soil to food sales. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meet in 3 on HRN. Meet in 3. Meet in 3. Meet in 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and three. The restaurant industry was heavily affected by the pandemic, with more than a thousand restaurants closing in New York City. During the past couple years, outdoor dining has remained a staple of the city's dining scene, while to-go cocktails have come and gone and come again. After a brief hiatus, restaurants are now able to sell drinks to go, with the restrictions, of course. Giselle Medina talks with a restaurant owner from Queens who is adding a to-go cocktail station for their customers. New Yorkers, get yourself ready for to-go cocktails again. Let's bring it back a bit. Back to March 2020. At the height of the pandemic, restaurants either closed or were solely doing deliveries. To help restaurants stay afloat, the temporary to-go cocktails program was created. Marcos Munoz is one of the owners of Mojitos Restaurant, located on Northern Boulevard in Jackson Heights. During the pandemic, Marcos made the difficult decision to close Mojitos Restaurant. We basically thought we were going to lose the business. It was a tough moment. But uh, thank God, when, the, um, when they allowed us to sell cocktails to go, it was a hit. It was a boom. We reopened. Uh, everyone used to sell like margaritas, frozen margaritas to go. And we were the only ones selling mojitos, margaritas, uh, sangrias, frozen to go. The program started in 2020 as a temporary emergency effort to help restaurants and bars after the state shutdown. Since the program ended last June, restaurant owners and some local officials called for the return of to-go cocktails, especially since past Governor Andrew Cuomo ended the program with only a 24-hour notice. This directly affected Mojito's restaurant with their revenue dropping approximately 35 to 45 percent with the loss of to-go cocktails. So, Marcos and his team had to once again come up with a new strategy to keep Mojito's restaurant in business. Thankfully, we are located in a corner, so like we couldn't either see people in our indoor dining. So, as we have a, as we have a corner, uh, we were able to see people out there in our door dining. And basically, we built it in a, in a way that um, people felt safe. During the pandemic, right? Basically, we built it private cabins. About we have about fourteen private cabins, so we had we had enough space to to balance what we couldn't do indoors without the drinks. <laughs> when Marco says cabins, he really means that. 
There are currently some outdoor dining cabins that seat a party of four and others seat a party of six or more. Each cabin has a sliding door, windows, a fan, and a hand sanitizer dispenser. But back to the to-go cocktails. On Thursday, April 7th, after to-go cocktails was passed in the state's budget, Governor Kathy Hochul tweeted, We're legalizing to-go drinks, she says, to support small businesses and because I know we could all use a drink. This isn't a permanent thing. The program expires in three years and would have to be debated again when that time comes around. And all alcohol orders must be bought with food. Now Mojito's restaurant is tweaking their look again to accommodate to-go cocktails. So during the pandemic, basically, we used our front, front windows and, and we used it as a, as a DS station for the drinks to go. Right now, we don't have that ability, that ability to, to, to do it as, as previously. So right now, the, our main entrance connects with, the, with a private cabin that we built it before. So what we did is we knocked down a, a window and we're building a, a sliding door. So every day we could pull out our, our frozen machines to be able to, to serve it as, as, as the to-go station. The noise you hear in the background are construction workers building the to-go station. And in no time, Mojito's restaurant will have their very own to-go cocktail station at their front entrance. Well, this new to-go station, basically, it's, it's based on what we on, on what we already know, right? Our customers used to love that station. We don't have it anymore since we are operating at, at 100% right now. So we have to think on, on, on something very, very comfortable for our customers so that way they, they don't have to come all the way in. And basically, if they're walking by, they, they just could stop and, and order the drinks to go. Mojito's restaurant offers more than 20 different mojito flavors. As someone who is a regular customer, I highly recommend that you stop by for their blue Hawaiian or passion fruit mojitos and always go for the frozen option. The New York City food scene isn't all about restaurants. Street food vendors are an integral part of it too. From halal carts in Hudson Yards to rice roll carts in Chinatown, Food vendors are on almost every corner, but many are facing exorbitant ticketing by the city government and police. The Street Vendor Project, or SVP, is one support system they have access to. Angela Cho speaks with leaders at this member-led organization offering legal and small business services. Now that New York City is almost fully back in person after quarantine, street vendors are out and about filling New Yorkers' bellies every day. Along with the restaurant business, street food vendors were hit hard during the pandemic. Now, they're trying to make up for their financial losses with the help of the street vendor project. Legal director of SVP, Matthew Shapiro, explains how street vendors are organized under the city government. And it's interesting because street vending itself is is not and should not be a, a quality of life issue. It's a small business issue. But in fact, vendors, street vending all, all usually gets lumped in with other quality of life issues. And I, I don't even like that word quality of life issues, but for, for lack of a better word, such as, you know, the homelessness crisis and uh, uh, crime and uh, sanitation, right? All of these, you know, quote unquote problems or issues that the city has to deal with, street vending sometimes gets lumped in with that. 
For decades, street vendors have been ticketed for violating city vending regulations. Each ticket charges $1,000. The main cause is not having license and or permits. In response to the street vendors' rallies, the New York City Council passed Intro 1116B last January. This bill states that for the next decade starting this summer, 400 new permits will be given out every year to people on the waiting list. Fazia Syed, organizer of SVP, shares why vendors are having a hard time acquiring these permits. Since 1983, there was a cap on the number of permits for selling food on the streets. And that was,、um, I believe, 2,900 food vendor permits, right? That seems like a lot if you don't know about vending. But when you think about how there are vendors on every corner, These are people and these are small businesses that everyday New Yorkers can go to to get affordable meals, right? Easily accessible meals. So when you think about it, $2,900 is really nothing for food. That doesn't include the tacos, the churros, the halal carts, right? We need way more permits. But since 1983, there has been this arbitrary cap at $2,900 for really absolutely no reason. And because of that, There have been vendors that have been on the waiting list for up to 15 years. According to the Community Service Society, the waitlist for the mobile food vendor permit closed in 2007 with almost 6,000 individuals on the list. What they end up having to do because they still want to vend, they still want to have legal businesses, they don't want to get fined or harassed, they rent out permits in what is an exploitive underground market where Permits that the city would be giving out for hundreds of dollars. Now, these vendors who are forced to rent them rent from permit owners that received these permits years ago, decades ago, literally, right? When there was no cap and when there were permits available, they rent for up to $25,000, which is ridiculous, which is unnecessary, which the city does know. Despite not being able to work for the majority of 2021 due to the pandemic, they were still required to pay back the $25,000 license fee. This is a heavy burden for many street vendors. We're continuing to work with that because so many food vendors are still being exploited with these high rent、uh, prices, especially during the pandemic where now they're in debt, a lot of them, right? Because they weren't able to sell, but now they still have to pay the $25K for, you know. Just because the city won't do what it needs to do to fix the system, right? For them. By 2032, Intro 1116B will have released 4,000 permits. It's a big victory, but it's also a small amount given the demand. So, first, you know, the first batch of permits for probably the first several years are going to go to people that have been on the waiting list for, for, for decades.、Um, after that, if there are permits remaining, then it will go to other food vendors、uh, who are interested. But、uh, it's something, but it's, it's, it's not enough to meet the demand because there are just thousands of people out there either working、uh, on the street with a rented permit or, or taking a big risk and selling without a permit.、Um, they need to be formalized. They need to receive permits now, not in five or six years,、uh, if, if that. Intro 1116B would not only help food vendors receive permits, but assist the city oversee the street food vendors. While the street food vendor project is excited to see change, their fight is not over yet. 
ideally, our goal is to just overall, <laughs> you know, change this system, right, for all vendors, right? Because we're not only working for food vendors, it's for all vendors, right? Anyone who sells on the streets, who's making an honest living for themselves. You know, vendors say all the time, we're not selling illegal things. We're not selling drugs, right? We will literally give you our money. Just give us a permit. Honestly, every vendor, like, I've we work with that we, they are the most hardworking individuals in the city, right? They want to work and they're willing to pay the price that needs to be paid so they can work legally, but the city is not allowing them to work legally. It gives no reason, right? Like it has like these, maybe these false narratives sometimes, oh, it takes away business from brick and mortar stores. The people who are buying the $5, $10, you know, chicken and rice plates, they are doing that because they need a five-minute meal, right, really quick. When they want to go sit down at restaurants, they will do that. They have the options. It's all there, right? Matthew and the SVP know that accomplishing these changes are going to take time, but they're in it for the long haul. Nothing changes overnight, of course. We, we all know that when there's any type of, of struggle for justice or struggle for fairness, uh, it takes a long time. It takes a long time of building power within that community, um, building power within the street vending community, uh, showing that power to elected officials and uh, making them understand that this is an important issue. It's about economic justice. It's about social justice. It's about racial justice. Um, and I think vendors are doing it, but it's going to take a little while. In a few months, intro 1116B will take action. 400 new food permits will be given out, allowing them a fair chance of supporting themselves and their families. This is just the beginning. Thousands of vendors are still waiting to get their license and permits. This means that they're still in danger of the increasing ticketing issue. In the meantime, they'll continue to show up and feed New York City. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let BentoBox design and build you a beautifully branded website. BentoBox websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. I'm Chaba Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred. 
my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back to Meet in 3. It's inevitable that a city of nearly 9 million people is going to produce waste. But what kind of waste, and how we dispose of it, are far more uncertain. Isaac Furman tells us about the challenges facing New York's composting program. Before we talk about the details of composting in New York City, I want to make two things clear. One, most climate experts agree reducing organic waste found in landfills, i.e. composting, is a critical component in reducing our methane emissions, which in turn could help us avoid a catastrophic rise in the global temperature. And two, New Yorkers are, collectively speaking at least, really bad at composting. The city says that roughly one-third of the waste sitting in municipal landfills could have been composted. That's a ton of organic matter that could have been turned into topsoil, instead contributing to climate change. So the question I want to try and answer is this. Why has proper waste management been such a struggle for the city? And what can we do to improve it? I decided to head over to my local compost drop-off in Brooklyn and hear from some composting New Yorkers. And how long have you been composting in New York City? Since I got back from college, so six or seven years. I've only been composting for about a year since I moved in with this roommate. I've lived in New York for almost 10 years, and I would say for about half of that, I composted. It's been about six months now. For many New Yorkers, these city-funded drop-off sites are the simplest way to compost. But COVID-related budget cuts decimated the program and any composting progress the city had made over the past decade. There are currently only 52 Grow NYC drop-off sites across the five boroughs, servicing about 7,000 residents, including the people I spoke to. Uh, we, we did have a few problems dumping it off and during, because a lot of places were closed in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. And we had a fruit fly infestation, and then we had to stop for a couple weeks. It was, it was a rough, rough time. Absolutely, it was more difficult. And part of that had to do with public health reasons, right? I think there was, towards the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know as much about how the virus worked. But yeah, absolutely, it it ended up shutting things down longer. There was a really inspiring movement. Groups like Save Our Compost and others that tried and did successfully create stations for people to drop off, but the city didn't make it any easier. If anything, it's become more difficult When I asked these composters about what they'd like to see from the city moving forward, there was a clear consensus. My neighborhood doesn't yet have curbside composting. We'd love to see it expand to more neighborhoods. The the gold standard, I think, is just having some kind of pickup or something like that that a lot of cities do. Obviously, curbside for all would be really nice so that more people have a chance to do it. Not everyone has the free time to come to the food scrap drop-off. Voluntary curbside pickup is theoretically possible for about half of New Yorkers right now. But there's a catch. A tenant has to request the service, and for any building with more than 10 units, which is most of New York City, management must approve the request. Up until a couple of weeks ago, this fledgling system was in jeopardy. In Mayor Adams' initial fiscal year budget proposal, he cut the composting program to save taxpayers $18.2 million. Composting advocates were outraged by the cuts. 
arguing that the program is not only vital for the environment, but represents less than 0.02% of the annual budget. And here's where things get really maddening. A recent report by the Independent Budget Office found that were the city to make curbside composting mandatory, it would save $33 million annually after the third year, meaning it's actually in the city's best long-term economic interest to institute mandatory composting. And now, it looks like the advocates may have done enough. In an updated April budget proposal, Adams reincorporated the $18.2 million that he had originally cut. It's a rare win for Team Compost, although the Adams administration still hasn't signaled a willingness to increase funding for the meager program. But let's take a step back for just a moment. Discussions surrounding composting usually use the word waste. But the thing is, composting isn't waste. That liquefied bag of spinach that's at the bottom of your crisper, it can easily be turned into topsoil. Even the concept of waste is sort of a synthetic idea that we've made in the past hundred years as a, as a species. Like, forest doesn't make any waste, but it makes a lot of compost. I get that most people probably won't think about composting the same way as me and my new friend Mateo do. And that's okay. The onus really shouldn't be on the citizen to do all the work. It should be the city's responsibility to act in our collective best interest. And right now, it isn't. New York state legislators are also taking a closer look at soil. They're trying to establish common ground between farmers and environmentalists. The Soil Health and Climate Resiliency Act, which was passed in December, will introduce a more holistic approach to state climate and agriculture policy this growing season. Anna Canny sits down with a soil scientist whose research informed the legislation. When New York State's soil health movement began, it wasn't about climate policy. Going back to in New York State in the late 80s, early 90s, we had not just organic farmers who were paying a lot of attention to maintaining healthy soils and having high organic matter, but even our very conventional farmers were realizing that, you know, the farm soils they were inheriting perhaps from their parents were not as good as what their parents got from the grandparents, and they didn't want to keep up that tradition. That's Cornell University professor David Wolf. His research is centered around soil health and climate smart farming. Soil is an ecosystem of its own, so assessing its health can be complicated. But one of the most important aspects of soil health is organic matter. Having good organic matter in soils is kind of, it feeds the soil food web, as we say, and really is important for soil structure. For more than a century, conventional farming practices like heavy plowing and leaving fields bare in the winter has led to soil erosion and loss of organic matter. And that leads to soils that no longer can really hold water very well during dry periods. And also, they can't really drain well during wet periods. The soil structure is kind of messed up. Water here is key. Research shows that under some conditions, a 1% increase in organic matter can help the soil to hold an additional 20,000 gallons of water per acre. And over the past few decades, precipitation in the northeastern U.S. has become more unpredictable, with a higher risk of summer droughts and more frequent heavy rainfall. So farmers started turning to soil health to improve water quality and resilience to weather. Meanwhile, researchers like David were noticing a more direct link between soil health and climate change. Those of us who are working, doing some work in the climate change arena, recognize the fact that, of course, this organic matter is often 60% or more carbon 
that's carbon that otherwise would be in the air as the greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide. This ability to store carbon makes soil important for climate policy. And though climate change can sometimes be a charged political word among farmers, the Soil Health and Climate Resiliency Act actually united environmental groups like the Nature Conservancy with farmer advocacy groups like the Farm Bureau and American Farmland Trust. The soil health movement is a new opportunity for bipartisan climate policy. It was close to unanimously um, passed the legislature, Republicans and Democrats. So while we hear a lot about the political uh, divide in Washington, D.C., here at the state level, we had a real convergence of all of these groups. The legislation will support research and education programs to help growers adopt soil health practices on their farm. And by recognizing soil health as a priority, the act gives agriculture a bigger role in the state's ambitious climate plan. It's not just about putting in those solar farms, but maintaining farmland where you can also be drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it in soils is part of the solution. With this new policy in place, farmers can take a more active role in slowing the pace of climate change. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Autumn Jemison, Giselle Medina, Angela Cho, Isaac Furman, Anna Canny, and Kiara Thomas. Meet in 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>